to begin, I'm just going to jump right in, and then, uh, well, as we go on, I think there's going to be a Q&A time at the end, so if there's something that sparks something in you by what I say, just make sure to jot that down if you would like. Um, but what I want to do, I'm going to kind of lay this out for you. Uh, we're going to lay some groundwork. We're going to be doing some explaining and exegeting of a couple of passages in the book of Jeremiah. You can turn to Jeremiah 45 and also keep your finger there in Jeremiah 36. We're going to be going to those places. Because uh, what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of this man named Baruch, who is probably an unfamiliar character to you unless you've done some deep dive Old Testament study before. But Baruch was the assistant, and we could say the copyist for the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, he has this very interesting, very fascinating story that you can find in both these chapters. And in many ways, what I'd like to, what I, what I'd like to show you tonight is, in fact, that Baruch's life and story is almost, we could say, the stand-in or a proxy, if you will, for our lives as well. I think he's very much uh, someone that we can look to in terms of how he handles or we could say how he mishandles his circumstances is probably very much how we would handle them or mishandle them too. And I find this really fascinating because oftentimes, at least for me, I don't know if you're anything like me, um, when we think about Old Testament characters or figures, we think, man, how ancient and how foreign. But in fact, a lot of the Old Testament people that you read about were just like you. They had the same sorts of bouts with depression and suffering and frustration. They had lives, they real human lives that they lived. They weren't just characters. Um, sometimes, you know, if you... If, if I say flannel graph, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Remember the old flannel graph lessons in Sunday school? And sometimes we can think that that's just what they were. But in fact, they were real people. That a lot of similarities to you and me. And though they were living in a, a, a foreign land, so to speak. But they were not that much different from you or me. And so what I hope to show you tonight is that Baruch's... His experience, I think, is not only similar to ours, especially recently, but I would say oftentimes this experience of Baruch is actually, I would say, indicative of all of God's disciples throughout scriptures. Which is just to say his struggles are not necessarily unique to him. And anyone, I would say, who entrusts their life to the living God, the God who is alive right now, well, I would say, at some times, find themselves in similarly desperate situations. And there's only one thing that is ever going to be uh, able to keep you, and it's what allowed Baruch to allow him to keep going through those circumstances. And it's the same thing, by the way. It's God's word of promise. No matter if you are Baruch living in ancient Jerusalem or whether you are Joe Schmo living in 2023 America, the same word of promise is what gets you through difficult circumstances. Regardless of where you are, that's what allows the disciples of God to keep going. So, again, that very long title. I have a proclivity, I guess, to long titles. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about that. Finding faith in the fog of suffering, the ballad of Baruch and the certainty of God's promises over the false hope of our own predictions. And I think what I want to show you is that in this story, there is just brimming comfort. Just abounding grace for weary and worn out souls. So let's jump right in. Jeremiah 45. It's a fascinating chapter. And it's fascinating because it is the shortest chapter in all of Jeremiah's prophecy, which I think might lead us to maybe perhaps skim over it. It's only five verses. It's brief. It's obscure. It is addressed to this man named Baruch, and he's also not really well known or anything like that. There's not much here, if you just read on it, that allows us to sink our teeth into it. It's meant to sort of jog our memory to other, other places, which we'll do in a moment. But notice what happens. Verse 1, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in the book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me. For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find 
no rest. What I find interesting is that this is a chapter and a prophecy to God's people, but it's actually this particular chapter is addressed to a single individual. Again, it's addressed to that man named Baruch, which to me begs the question, what was going on in Baruch's life and mind right now that it warranted a very particular, direct, prophetic address? Why was Baruch so down? And as he says, woe is me, it's this exclamation of great weariness, of great hopelessness. What was going on in his life that warranted this? Well, verse 1 is our clue in that key phrase. Notice the word that the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah. That's our clue. You see, this particular chapter is not where it should be in terms of chronology. If you wanted that chronological sort of prequel, you would have to go to chapter 36, which is what I told you earlier. So go to chapter 36, because what I want you to do is get situated into the life story of Baruch. To do that, you have to go here. Because when he's referencing the words that were spoken, that they were writing down, this is the story of that. Jeremiah 36 is another interesting chapter because Jeremiah, the prophet of God, who is preaching this message to the people of God, receives instructions directly from God that he's supposed to put all of those messages, all of those prophetic addresses that he's previously declared to Israel and to Judah, put them in a book and republish them, rebroadcast them, recirculate them to the people. Notice verse 1. Again, notice the time frame. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, from Jehovah. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. So at this point, Jeremiah has been preaching for a long time, has lots of messages to his name. And essentially, the word is, take all of those, rebind them, sort of formulate them, put them in a book, put them in scrolls, and recirculate them, again, for the people's repentance. Which has probably led to Jeremiah's perhaps quizzical look at the Lord. (laughs) Because up until now, all of these messages have been mostly falling on deaf ears. They haven't really done much in the way of leading the people to where they should be. And yet now, God's calling for these messages to be rebroadcasted again. And again, notice the intent, verse number 3. It may be, the Lord says, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. That's God's heart. His heart is to bring his people back to his side, back to his side of forgiveness. And if I was Jeremiah, perhaps he thought this too. If I was Jeremiah, I would be thinking, they didn't work before, so why are they going to work now? (laughs) But anyways, Jeremiah obeys. And he summons his assistant Baruch to come into his office, bring all the paper and ink that you can find, and let's start dictating. And that's what happens. Verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So they're scribbling and writing away. Filling volume, perhaps upon volume of scrolls with the message of God's, yes, impending judgment. But the possibility for mercy based upon the people's repentance. A great message. It's the message of promise. It's the message of the certainty of God's grace and mercy. And it's getting the people to believe in that. And yet, I feel so bad for poor old Baruch here. Because he got way more than he bargained for when he went into that office and started dictating the message. Notice verse number 5. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned 
from going to the house of the Lord. So you, you are to go. And on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. And it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Imagine Baruch. In that moment, the little copyist guy, the guy who just spends all of his day mostly dealing with words and transcribing the messages of his teacher. And now he's just given somewhat of a raw deal. You are the one who's going to have to go out and preach this message, Brooke. No more can you just stay in the office. You've got to go out and start preaching. And putting myself in Baruch's shoes, I'd be like, I'm not a penman. Or excuse me, I'm not a preacher, I'm just a penman. I'm not a communicator, I'm just a copyist. You want me to take these all-important words and go out into the square and read them? Talk about deer in the headlights moment for Baruch. As he realizes what he's been asked to do, all of that distress, I just put myself in his sandals. How distressed and daunted he must have been. Of taking this message of impending judgments before the king. It didn't work when Jeremiah spoke it. And he was way more eloquent than me. And yet he does so anyway. Look at verse 8. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah king of Judah in the ninth month. All the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Jeremiah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. He does what he's told. Publicly reading these words of, of judgment and mercy before everyone in that public square. And it causes a great stir. An uproar amongst the people. You can read about it in the, in the subsequent verses. And a young man, essentially, his name is Micaiah. And he hears the words that Baruch is publicly proclaiming. And alarm bells start going off in his mind. So he rushes off to the office of the king's secretary. And I just put myself in that moment. And he's rushing in and he's out of breath. And he, he starts talking to all these officials. And he tells them everything that he heard in the square that day. Alarming words. That old prophet Jeremiah, he's back at it again. And now he has his assistant doing his bidding. And quickly Baruch is then summoned to come in to the office and rehearse this message once again. And as he does, look at verse 15. A look of panic shoots across the faces of these royal officials. Look at verse number 15. And they said to him, Sit down and read it. Read your scroll for us again so we can make sure all these rumors about what you've been proclaiming in the city this day, that we can make sure that they're true. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. They start turning pale white with fear over what Baruch is saying. And I think this does some things. It signals the fact that these words had power, because they're not Baruch's words, they're, they're God's. It does something. It's affecting these people. It's affecting their minds and their hearts. And the kingsmen start acting really quickly. They give Baruch the heads up. By the way, you should like leave now. Because the king is not going to react very well to this message. He's going to want your head on the platter after he hears about this. So you should, you should probably hightail it out of here by now. And they give him that heads up, but then they say, we are bound because of our allegiance to the king. We're going to have to take this message to him. So the writings of Jeremiah that the Baruch was preaching, they are taken to the king, who, as we find out later in the chapter, was vacationing at the time at his winter cabin with a great roaring fire. That's an important detail. Look at verse 20. So they're taking the scroll to the chamber of the king. Notice, so they went into the court of the, to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. And they reported all the words to the king. 
Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. So here he is, the king is having what the scroll said that Jeremiah dictated to Baruch read in front of him. And as the scroll is being read, you would hope, you would pray, you would imagine, right, that this king would be brought to his knees by this amazing message of judgment and mercy that Jeremiah declared. But that's not at all what happens. In fact, direct opposite of what happens. Notice verse 23. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. This assistant of his is reading. Instead of being moved to repent, he is actually calloused even more. And he takes out a little knife and starts cutting and starts cutting and starts ripping the shreds and throwing the shreds of paper into the fire, consuming the message of God in flames. He would prefer to burn the prophet's words rather than listen to them. As if... You can, you can kind of see through it, can't you? As if burning those words makes them any less true. It doesn't work that way. But at least he thought it could work that way. This king is so defiant, so hostile towards the truth, that he would rather burn these words than listen to them. He shows no remorse while doing so. Look at verse 24. Yet neither the king, notice, nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid. Nor did they tear their garments. You see, that was supposed to be the response. The, the tearing of garments was the Old Testament way of showing your anguish and showing your grief over the message that you have just received. It was a sign of abject deference towards the message of truth that was in front of you. And yet, as it says, there was none of that. They weren't moved. They weren't pricked. None of that at all. In fact, it says they weren't afraid at all. Scary words. And in fact, he even disregards the counsel of his friends in that room this king did. And he calls for the prophet Jeremiah and his assistant to be seized in that moment. Look at verse 25. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Jeremiah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jehamiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shalamiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Fascinating turn of events. This scroll goes from being dictated to being consumed by a defiant king. The king, by the way, as you might have noticed from verse 1 of this chapter and verse 1 of chapter 45, is the king Jehoiakim. He's a really interesting guy. I preached on the books of kings last year. And it's fascinating because this king's story is really interesting. Jehoiakim. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 23. But a quick, a quick brief uh, history lesson for you. Jehoiakim came to power after the, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time, Necho, um, uh, came to power thanks to him. And, and then they were put under, the, uh, under subject to Babylonian rule after Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And then, so now, uh, Jehoiakim is sort of a puppet king of Babylon at that time. And then he foolishly decides that he's going to rebel against Babylon. And that's what led, that's what sparked Nebuchadnezzar's assault on Jerusalem proper. And while all of that was going on, who's in Jehoiakim's ear? Jeremiah is. <laughs> the whole time. While all of those trading of powers and trading of allegiances, all of these sort of political wrangling is going on, Jeremiah is in his ear preaching this message of judgment and deliverance. And he refused to listen to all of it for 11 years while he was on the throne with nothing but pride on his part. See, the story of Jehoiakim, a little side story within this story, is a really sad story. 
Because rather than humble himself at this amazing declaration of judgment and mercy, what? He would rather hold on to his pride, cling to his own ego, cling to his own wisdom, which did nothing but plunge and further the people of God down the road to treachery and ruin and misery. And in fact, I would say Jehoiakim's defiance should be really alarming to all of us. Because this action, if you'll, uh, this is a little bit of a preaching for a moment. This action of burning the words of God, I would say, is still being done in our own day. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. I think there are hordes of people who come to church and they are turning the words of God to ash in their hearts. They're turning a deaf ear to what God's message is. How many of you have heard, you don't have to raise your hands, have heard this idea from someone you're approaching to, talking to them about the Bible, about the church, about Christianity, and they think that that's just the place where people go to hear doom and gloom messages. And what's so fascinating is that is not even the point at all. Jeremiah 36 verse 6, notice what this says. You are to go, and on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. Why? So that it may be that their plea of mercy will come before the Lord, and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. The point is their repentance. He's promising them there is forgiveness waiting for you. You are plunging yourself down a road of destruction and ruin and misery. Just stop and turn. See, the message of God is not a message of doom and gloom. It's a message of repent and believe. Bring you, to bring you to your knees. That's the message this king refused to hear. There's forgiveness waiting at the feet of Yahweh. And more than just refused this message, he rejected it. He paid it no mind at all. Which is just to say, I think this word of God, this word of the Lord, continues to garner the same reaction. Where folks refuse to hear these words, words that contain their salvation, words that lead them to deliverance. How devastating. But I'll also say it, this same paradigm of turning God's words to ash is even more uh, sort of common than we would like to admit perhaps in our places of worship. Let me just, I'll just say this really quickly. You're effectively doing the same thing that Jehoiakim does when you think that you can pick and choose which parts of the Bible you're going to listen to or not listen to. That's sort of the same thing as Jehoiakim does. You cannot pick and choose the parts of the Bible you want and disregard the rest. God's word is not have it your way sort of deal. I think the point of all this is this, is that we, like Baruch was in this particular moment, are faced with a similar task of declaring a hard message to some hard-hearted folk. And we are not at liberty to change that message to make it easier for the audience to swallow. Our errand is what? To proclaim the unwatered down truth of God's word. Which is what? Judgment is coming. But God in and through Christ has made a way for mercy and relief from judgment. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And whether our message is received or not, our message remains true. Just like Baruch's. You can't burn it and make that message untrue. Why? Because it's not ours. It's God's. So I think... Leading all that to say, maybe it makes more sense why Baruch is so down. Maybe it makes more sense and we can sympathize if you go back to Jeremiah 45. Why he says, woe is me. Because we understand what he went through. He had put himself and his life in jeopardy on the line, so to speak, at great risk. But he did so in faith. When Baruch utters this, when he says, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain, and I am weary with my grinding, and I find no rest. This is because I definitely think that he had high hopes for what this new sort of project would achieve. 
Who could have predicted this outcome? The burning of the words of Yahweh by the king of Yahweh's people. Who would have predicted that? Who would have imagined that this is how things would turn out? And I, or even to put it this way, do you think that Baruch, when he was dictate or when he was transcribing these words, did you do you think that he had the thought that these words would soon be burned and thrown into a fireplace? Probably not. Like anyone else, I imagine Baruch was filled with this idea. He was convinced that this endeavor would be successful. After all, God gave Jeremiah the unction to do this. He gave him the instructions to proceed with this. Why wouldn't he bless the results? Of course he's going to. Of course God is going to do something through this. This is going to be a fruitful thing. This is going to be amazing. This is going to, this is going to be it. This is going to be what leads the people of God back to reformation, back to revival. And so you can imagine... When Jehoiakim threw those pages into the fireplace, it wasn't just God's word. It was God's word that was being burned so viciously and callously. But you can also put yourself in Baruch's shoes. All of his hopes and dreams were going up in flames too. What he had poured his life into was being vaporized right in front of him. Who could have predicted that? And even more so, why would God allow that? Why would God allow that to occur? No wonder he says, woe is me. You've added insult to injury, he basically says. Maybe maybe you've said something like that recently. The last couple of years. I won't ask you if you have. I'll just ask it, I'll ask it this way. Who in the world who could have predicted what we have experienced as a nation, as a world, the last several years? Who had that in the cards? And I'm not talking about people with tinfoil hats on. Maybe they had it predicted. I don't know. But I don't think in general we could have predicted how things have transpired. Because I, I would say in a lot of ways, all of our hopes and our dreams and our plans, they have been sufficiently turned to ash over the last several years. And it feels as though we've been on some sort of endless cycle of upheaval. And controversy and scandal and sorrow. Every time you refresh your news feed, you have no idea what's going to come and be the first story. <laughs> Let's see what's going on in the world of chaos now. <laughs> and doesn't it feel, I don't know, maybe I'm, this is just me and you, don't, you can agree with me if, or if you want. But it feels like our world is going to hell in a handbasket way faster the more and more this goes on. And so what do we do? Well, to counter that unsettling feeling, because we don't like being uh, out of, we don't like feeling like everything's out of control. What do we do? We are so quick and we are often really quick to resort to the remedy of predictions. The logic is what? If I can know, if I can assert, or if I can intuit what the days in front of us might hold, then we will not be surprised when the surprising things occur. Because we can just say, I knew that was going to happen, I predicted it. That makes us feel a little bit like we're in control. That makes us feel a little bit like we have all of this chaos under management, so to speak. By the way, this, hopefully I don't step on too many toes when I say this, sorry TJ. This is why I think Revelation is so popular right now. Every I don't know if you're preaching on Revelation, so I'm sorry. This, every... A lot of churches are preaching on Revelation. Why? Because we think it is what? It is supposed to give us clues for predicting the future. So we can, as a pastor, I've heard this a couple times. Do you think that this is the end? Do you think that this is, where are we on the end times timeline? I don't know. And I think, let me just say, I'm not meaning to change your view of Revelation here tonight, but I think there is something to the idea of forecasting the future in Revelation, but that's not its primary purpose. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, you don't have to, but the primary purpose of that book is a letter to churches to showcase what? To comfort them by showing them the sovereignty of Christ over all things, yes, even the end of all things. It says there, right there in the first chapter, comfort them with these words. Which is just to say that all of the 
meaning of scripture, yes, even apocalyptic scripture, is not meant to make us predictors of the future. It's meant to make us faithful in the present. That's what it's for. Whereas precise predictions about what may happen or what may occur will give us a fleeting sense that the, that of things that are in control while the world around us burns. It often leads us to believe that we, are in the, uh, that we are okay because those things are in control based on our own predictions. But that sense of being in control through predictions is fleeting and it's futile. Because you and I are not able to predict the future. Christ says that over and over again. By the way, to his apostles, Mark 13, Acts chapter 1. We're not able to predict the future, let alone to predict what the next hour is going to hold. And that's because we're very unaware of what's happening in our present moment, let alone what might happen in the days to come. We don't have that kind of knowledge. Only God does. And in that sense, I think we should approach the upheaval of the right now and the uncertainty of the what may be like what we are, limited, finite creatures. Or, as one writer in the New York Times put it, like blind people tapping their canes on the pavement in the fog. (laughs) And in fact, let me read you this little snippet. This is a writer in the New York Times, and he said, People, quote, facing immediate danger want to hear an authoritative voice they can draw assurance from. They want to be told what will occur and how they should prepare and that all will be well. We are, well, we are not designed well, it seems, to live in uncertainty. The history of humanity is the history of impatience. Not only do we want knowledge of the future, we want it when We want it. And at some level, people think that the more they learn about what is predetermined, the more control they will have. This is an illusion. Human beings want to feel that they are on a power walk into the future when in fact we are always just tapping our canes on the pavement in the fog. You see, suffering, regardless of what form it takes or what scope it takes, is more often than not a non-stop tutorial in what? The futility of forecasting. And in actuality, suffering is just this, an invitation to put our faith, yes, the faith for the right now and the faith for the future into much larger hands. You see, I think that's the gist of Jeremiah 45.5. Notice what he says. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. You see, Baruch right here is on the verge of giving up. He's on the verge of waving the the white flag. All his predictions, they were turned to ash. All his expectations, they were sufficiently ruined. So what would keep him going in this? Why keep aligning himself with Jeremiah, this ousted prophet who now has a price on his head? Why am I seeking, why am I not just seeking great things for myself, living an easier life, not toiling about with the truth of God? Why am I putting myself into subjection to all this ridicule? Why not just give up? That's where Baruch was. Weary and spent. And he's right on the verge of packing it all in when he receives this word from God through Jeremiah. And it's not a message at all what he would expect. It's not a message of comfort and ease. In fact, if you look at verse 4, God tells him it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any way in shape better. Notice verse 4. Thus shall you say to him. So God is telling Jeremiah what to say to Baruch. Thus says the Lord, says Yahweh, behold... What I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. 
You see, rather than coddle Baruch with cozy words that might make him feel better, God says to him essentially, you better buckle up and just wait and see what I'm going to do. You say essentially, Baruch is, is getting this message that there's disaster coming on all flesh. This is the judgment of Yahweh that was just on the doorstep of God's kingdom. And here we learn that this is something that God was allowing I am doing it. I'm bringing it about. This was all part, we could say, of God's determination to till the ground, so to speak, of Israel's hearts. For the new work that he wanted to do. Something that he was doing. What he had built, he was going to break down. And what he had planted, he's going to uproot. See, essentially, God is comparing himself to A farmer preparing his field for a new season of sowing and planting and growing. For that to occur, what? The ground has to be tilled first. It has to be broken up. It has to be turned over. New seeds can't be put into hard, unworked clay. The ground has to be prepared for what's going to be planted. And God is saying in effect to Baruch, that's exactly what's going on in your day. All that old fallow ground of Israel's unbelief is right here, right now, being reworked to make a way for something new. And what is that new thing? You don't have to go there, but Jeremiah 31 tells us. Jeremiah 31, verse 27. Listen to these awesome words that God was doing. 31, 27 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that I have washed over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Verse 38, Behold. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner of the gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Gareb and, that, and shall then go to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Hidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Wow. He's giving Jeremiah the promise. And yes, this promise is the God's word of promise. That there's going to be a season of of, of uprooting and plucking up in order to replant. And when there's not going to be any more uprooting forever. Because he's doing a new thing. He's planting and doing something new. Again, put yourself in Baruch's shoes. I have to be sure that it did not feel good in the moment to hear those words. The words of God to Baruch, though, gave him this amazing perspective for this moment, we could say, of foggy suffering. It doesn't feel good. Going through seasons of suffering and uprooting and plucking up don't feel good in the moment. But here he's given the word of promise that this imminent disaster is not out of control at all. It's from me. This thing is from me, he says. God says essentially. That's a promise to cling to. Actually, that's a phrase that comes from another story. I'm just going to briefly tell you. And show you that this has been something that of, of a repeated pattern for God's people. Rewind several centuries. In the history of God's people. If you go to 1 Kings 12, you don't have to go there. Well, actually go there. Because I'm going to read a verse from there in a second. Rewind several centuries. 1 Kings 12. Amazing passage. One of my favorite, actually, in all the Old Testament. In this moment, the people of God are going through a season of great transition. Solomon has died. And now the kingdom of God basically is up for grabs. And his son, Solomon's son, makes a very, very boneheaded political decision. Which essentially leads to the division of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God's people is on the brink of civil war. And in fact, a revolt sparks after this horrible political decision that Rehoboam makes. And suddenly, all the tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, they mount this assault. They lead this revolt against the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And there's this all-out war and the separation occurs. The kingdom of God divides. 
horrible moment in Jewish history. And suddenly, Rehoboam and his, and his men, they, they, they're sort of licking their wounds back in their room after this horrible season of division and revolt with the kingdom of God crumbling and fracturing right in the front of them. And they're, they're sort of trying to get their minds around what has happened. And they're talking about, let's launch a counteroffensive. Let's go back. Let's claim what's ours. Let's reclaim the throne of David. Let's keep this kingdom united. And in walks this humble, nondescript prophet of God into this room that's filled with the fervor of going back to war. And what does he say? So notice verse number 22 of 1 Kings 12. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home for this thing is from me. How in the world could that be true? God's people are dividing. God's people are being separated. They're allowing old, uh, old, entire divisions and tribal distinctions divide them in the present. How could this be from God? And notice the response. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. I always imagine this is probably going to date me or whatever. And make, you'll, you'll think something of me by this. Uh, I always imagine the 1930s Robin Hood movie. If you've ever seen that movie, at the end of the movie, everyone starts laying down their swords in the middle of the room. I just imagine that scene here. Shemaiah comes in. This thing is from me. This thing is from Yahweh. And all the men who are ready to go to battle, they lay down their swords. Why? Because this seemingly random confluence of conflict and catastrophe right here in this moment is not random at all. In fact, if you go up to verse 15, notice, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Whoa. That this is something from God that he is allowing to reveal his providential wisdom. This whole fiasco that seems out of control, that seems totally opposite of what God would want, is actually just a stage upon which his omnipotent grace could be seen and known by all who were there. And through all of that wreckage, we're made to see one thing, that God always fulfills his word. You know the phrase that you can highlight, and I, you can... Do this if you want. If you're into highlighting your Bible, which I'm not. I'm too OCD to do that. But if you are, I challenge you. Highlight the phrase, according to his word. Or according to the word of the Lord. All throughout First and Second Kings. Because it occurs a lot. And the point is what? It's not the men in government or some place of power that are making the things churn. It's God's word of promise. That's what is making all things happen. And it's all happening according to as he has promised. This thing is from me. Fast forward another moment in the history of God's people. To John chapter 20. I think we see these same things at work in the lives of the apostles. Because like Baruch, the apostles were driven to abject grief and despair in the aftermath of the cross. And in fact, John 20 verse 19 indicates that they had barricaded themselves in a house, in a safe house so to speak, behind locked doors. Why? For fear of the Jews. The days after, or the hours after Jesus' death on the cross were horrible for the apostles. They were at their lowest. And suddenly now they keep hearing of these rumors that his body is gone. And now they are the prime targets for raiding the grave of this Roman traitor who has been tried and put to death. Talk about fear. Talk about abject despair. Again, put yourselves in the shoes of the apostles. 
When they see Jesus on that cross breathe his last, so too do all their hopes and dreams die. Because the prevailing thought was what? The prevailing thought of the Messiah was summed up by those guys on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that it was he that would deliver us and redeem Israel out of the hand of Roman oppression. That was their thought. Messiah was going to be this figure that would come and lead Israel out of Roman bondage. And he was going to set up a kingdom. And we were going to be his viceroys of this kingdom. We're going to have thrones. We're going to have power. We're going to have authority. And then suddenly Jesus dies. No one could have anticipated that. Even though they should have. Because Jesus told them. And here they are in this upper room. They're fearing for their lives. Not remembering that every time Jesus predicted his death. He also predicted his resurrection. But for some reason that was not in their heads. (laughs) And so it is that when Jesus shows up in the middle of that locked room, what does he do? He points to his hands and his feet and says, look, this thing has been from me the whole time. I'll just read it. Luke 24, verse 44. Amazing point. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see what's happening? He's saying basically the same thing. This thing is from me. This thing has been in the cards from the very beginning. And suddenly he opens their minds as they see their once dead now living Lord standing right in front of them. All their feelings of defeat are transfigured into faith. And the same guys who a couple hours ago were fearing for their life, a couple years from that moment, are are doing what? They're changing the world by starting the church. (laughs) I've always been fascinated by that fact. That the very same guys, as it says in Acts 17, who are being accused of turning the world on its head, turning the world upside down, a couple years before that, were fearing for their life because their teacher was dead. What's the only thing different in the middle of that? The resurrection. That's what transfigured everything for those guys. And now suddenly they're preaching this amazing message. That the cross is what? Not an emblem of defeat. It's actually an emblem of God's victory hidden in death. You see, this has been his encouragement from the very beginning for Baruch, for the apostles, for the people in Israel's day. What's the message? This thing is from me. Therefore, don't give up. Don't go and seek great things for yourself. Why? Because I'm doing a new thing. Instead of seeking great things for himself... Baruch is charged in Jeremiah 45 to seek them not. And in fact, we could insert essentially, seek them not and seek after me. It's like Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And in fact, just really quickly, we see that carried out by Jeremiah. If you transition back into the story of Baruch. Chapter 36, the price is on Baruch's head and Jeremiah's head. And what's his response? (laughs) I love this. Jeremiah has a price on his head because of what he's written. Verse 32, then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned with the fire. And many similar words were added to them. He just writes another book. (laughs) talk about faith in the present. You talk about being committed to the things of the God's word of promise over and above the things that are present. You see, the ballad of Baruch, this story, is a story that I think that reminds us that though our days are filled with trouble and turmoil and disaster and distress, which they are, God's word of truth remains firm forever. And his promises are always fulfilled. Even when it looks like death. Even when it looks like disaster. His word is a word of hope. 
which assures us that even those times of uprooting and upheaval are part of his purposes. And all of the chaos of life can't hold a candle to what God is doing, to what he's doing in our world, even when it doesn't look like it. This is what Martin Luther has to say about this. He says, commenting on a particular psalm, for, he says, it is a hard matter. And a work requiring the power of divine grace to believe in God as the lifter up of our head and crowner in the midst of death and hell. For this exaltation is a thing hidden. And that which is seen is only despair and not help in God. And therefore we are here taught to believe in hope against hope. Which the wisdom of the cross is at this day deeply hidden in a profound mystery. The hope of God's victory is hidden in the mystery of his own son's death. Which is a paradigm for all of life, I think. That our way through is often hidden behind some unseemly events. Events that feel like disruption. That feel like they're not a part of the plan. But through it all, we have God's word of promise, which reminds us that his program, his prerogative cannot be stopped. God's plans from before the foundation of the world till now have been unstoppable and they're not going to be thwarted now. You see, the gift of faith in the fog of suffering is the assurance of just that, that of a providence that works despite all the evidence to the contrary. No matter what horrific debris we may have to wade through, or hopes that are dashed, or plans that are changed, or expectations that are trampled, God's promises are perennially successful. And yeah, that's a hard thing to believe. Maybe you're like Baruch and you're given to saying, woe is me. God is there to say, this thing is from me. Grace always tells us what? That there's more going on than meets the eye. However foggy our days may seem, there is a sovereign one who is orchestrating all things to work together for his good and glorious purposes. It probably will not look like what you have predicted. But it's going to be so much better. Let us pray.